If you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We are one sermon away from finishing Hebrews. And all the people said, amen. Amen. (laughs) But at the same time, I have enjoyed studying through Hebrews. Next week, we will conclude our study through Hebrews. We took a couple of months off, you know, there and looked at Matthew chapter 18 and looked at a few Psalms in September. And uh, we will be concluding this next week as we look at chapter 13 in conclusion. But today, Hebrews chapter 12, looking at verses 3 through 29. Hebrews 3 through 29. And so as we walk through there, we see where the author of Hebrews, and we can look at this, and when we think about uh, training, so much of this is talking about training and, and how, how we are trained in faith to endure. And so we're going to look at this thought today, and the author of Hebrews, we can agree that the uh, Hebrew Christians received our author's doctrine and exhortations, then they potentially have one more question. They got one more question, and he had explained to them specifically all that they had in Jesus throughout the entire um, uh, book of Hebrews. He's explained this thoroughly. He had strengthened them for their race by telling them these different things. He said he has uh, strengthened them for, them ra- for their race by telling them to spend time with God, to stir up and meet with one another, to hold tight to their gospel confession, to expect suffering for Christ. He's told them to look forward to the great promised reward and to learn to live by faith. The author of Hebrews has, has compelled the readers of this letter in all of those things. But these exhortations uh, strengthen them for without rescuing them from the struggle. Many years ago, I preached through the uh, epistle of Colossians. And Paul writes that, he says, but yet I have this struggle for you, as some translations put it. I believe it's at the beginning of chapter 2 as he writes that to those in Colossae. And so there's a struggle. We have this struggle that's going on constantly, whether it be to receive doctrine or whether it is to uh, the working of our sanctification, moving away from the world and moving toward Christ. There's a struggle in the Christian's life. And so these, like I said, these exhortations strengthen them for without rescuing them from the struggle. So they may have asked, what is God doing during our struggle? What is God doing during our struggle? That's one of the questions we're going to address today. And maybe you could personalize this. What is God doing during, what is God doing during my struggle? Scripture is not limited to our answer in Hebrews 12 on suffering. So this is part of the answer, but not the whole of the answer. What is God doing during our struggle? He is training you and me. He's training us. He's training us for righteousness is what he's doing. And three further questions that we're going to look at today is what good does God's training produce? How do I know God's training works? And why should I receive God's training? We're going to look at those four questions. I know that was three, but what is God doing during our struggle? What good does God's training produce? How do I know God's training works? And why should I receive God's training? Well, as we look here at the first question, we begin there in verse 3 with a reality check. 
in verses 3 and 4. Let's read that together from Hebrews 12. It says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted bloodshed striving against sin. So the first thing is a reality check. We need to consider Christ. He gives us this reality check. Jesus endured to the point of death for his mission. The Bible even tells us that in the garden, before he went to the cross, before he was arrested, he prayed, uh, sweat, drops of blood, uh, sweat drops of blood for mine, as the hymn says. His sweat was, became like blood. He, he had sweated to the point of blood. And so Jesus endured to the point of death, to the point of bloodshed for his mission. That was the beginning of the bloodshed. The conclusion was on the cross where his blood was shed for you and I. And we know in Scripture it tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. But we've not resisted yet to that point. We've not yet resisted to such a point. And that's what the author is telling those Christians there. Perhaps we need this perspective. We need this reality check. Our, our persecution, our struggle is not yet to the degree of Christ's struggle that he experienced on this earth. So let us not make ourselves so, so poor and pitiful. Let us continue on. So back to our question, what is God doing during my struggle? What is God doing during our struggle? Let's look there in verses 5 through 8. The scripture tells us there, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So what is God doing during our struggle? He is loving you as his son or daughter. That's what Christ is doing. He is loving you as a son or daughter. We see in this text, we see it talks about the, the chastening of the Lord or the discipline of the Lord, as some translations put it. We see that we are rebuked by him or approved by him. And the Lord chastens those uh, whom he loves. He chastens every son whom he receives and he treats you as sons. You know, when I discipline my children, or it's, it's not as often as when they were little, uh, but I think back to that and I think back to how, uh, you know, when we were in a crowd, if, if a bunch of children were acting up, you know, I may give a general statement, but I'm going to have to discipline my kids different because they're mine. You know, I may speak out against a whole group, but I may say, you know, we're going to talk about this later. We're going to deal with this later. And that's, that's the way God does. God talks to us. He, he speaks to us. He pulls us aside. And when we think about this in our own lives, when we think about disciplining our children, or if we're in a church setting and we've got a, a group of students and we speak to the students in a general aspect, okay, then we should not be so over-the-top hollering. We should, it's my child. This is my child. I'm going to bring this child to me. And I'm going to speak to this child, specifically our own kids. When we think about God, God gives a blanket statement against sin, but yet he doesn't hold the world to the same standard as he holds his own children. 
People say, you can't judge me. Incorrect. The Bible never says that Christians cannot judge one another in Christ. But boy, everybody wants to come back on that all the time. The Bible tells us we are to hold one another accountable to the faith that we claim to have. Now, you can't hold a lost person to the standard of a Christ a Christ standard, a Christian standard. They're going to do lost things. Lost people are going to hang like lost folks. They're going to do lost things. God knows. My children who have called upon me as Lord and Savior, they should be living to a different standard. They should be speaking at a different level. They should be treating people differently. They should not sound like, look like, or act like those of the world. And he disciplines those. He disciplines us because he wants to train us, to correct us, to get us to the goal. And God has a right to tell us what to do. He's God. He has a right to do so. And God also has the right to regularly intervene in our lives to help us to become stronger in our faith. God has that right to do that. It's just like a parent has a right to take that phone and say, I need to look at your phone of that child. God has a right to know. God already knows your innermost parts, but we need to willingly give that over to him. Because if you've confessed him as Lord, he wants to save you, even from yourself. And sometimes you don't know what you need to be saved from, but he does. And his Lord, he can intervene and he has a right to intervene in our lives to help us to become stronger in our faith. And the main goal is to help you and I learn to endure. All of his instruction and training is designed not to punish, for Christ has dealt with our punishment, but to build us up. That's the point of discipline. That's the point of the chastising. It's to cause us to endure, to persevere in faith. So the first thing that he is doing is he is loving you and I as his son or daughter. The second thing is, is he is producing good in you. He is producing good in you. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. He talks about, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as, the, as seemed best to them. I, I feel like that the Lord knows that we are imperfect fathers, right? And I think as you read that as dads and as parents as a whole, I think there's a lot of grace in that verse right there. For they indeed, talking about our earthly fathers, for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, God, Christ, for our profit, that we may be partakers in his holiness. Now, no chastening, chastening seems to be joyful for the moment, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. So as we look at those verses, as we look at verses 9 through 11, that verse is telling us we've had these human fathers. I think about, uh, you know, my father. I think about, um, you know, going back to that previous thing. Uh, some friends of mine, we had gone out into the woods, and we were throwing rocks into a junkyard over their fence, breaking windows, you know. We, we thought they were junk cars, you know, stupid kid things to do, you know. And I had a couple of friends with me. When we got back home, we ran in. We lived on a dead-end road. We was the first house on a dead-end road. So we run in. The junkyard was back, way back in the woods. And we came back to the woods and ran back. We had the dogs chasing us, all that good stuff. So we come up. We run in the house. And we get in my bedroom. I'm like, maybe, maybe, they, didn't, maybe they didn't see us. 
few minutes later, I hear the screen door open to the carport. I hear Daddy walking down the hall. And he comes in and he goes, Boys, were y'all throwing rocks at the junkyard? I said, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I, I think it was Shane Greenwood who was with me. And uh, he said, Shane, you need to call your mama because you're going to need to go home. Blake, we're going to have a talk. Oh, my goodness. See, Dad wasn't going to discipline Shane like he was going to discipline me. I got a lot of trouble for that, lots of trouble. But Dad told me, he said, the owner of the junkyard said that if you had not confessed to it, he was going to press charges. But since you confessed to it, he's not going to press charges. And I said, praise God. But Dad's still going to press his charge on me. And I knew it was coming, and I got a whooping. And I ain't never done that before. Never threw a rocket at a junk car again. But, uh, you know, my dad disciplined me because I was his. And so why did he do that? Because he wanted me to know what was right from wrong. He wanted me to set myself apart from that type of a lifestyle, which is that's not really holiness as the Bible talks about it, but holiness is a word of separation or to be different. And God wanted me to different. God, my dad wants me to be different from other kids. He don't want me to be destructive. He didn't want me to do things like that again. So that's the reason why my dad disciplined me in that way. And in the end, the scripture tells us that even though discipline for the moment does not seem pleasant, in the end it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. So I know in, in, in being disciplined toward holiness and being disciplined within myself, apart from my dad even doing it now since I'm an adult, it's going to yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And it's training me. It's training me to pursue Christ over everything else. And just think, if our dads had our best in mind considering they too are fallible men, how much more would our perfect father know the correct way to discipline us for our good and his glory? Our good is living a righteous and fruitful life. So what is God doing during our struggle? First off, he's loving you and I as his children. And secondly, he is producing good in you and me. He's producing good in you and me. The second question that we're going to be looking at today is what good does God's training produce? What good does God's training produce in verses 12 through 17? Look there, it says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. I'm going to stop right there. What good does God's training produce? It produces value for your own life. Value for your own life. And so when we think about that, it says, strengthen your hands which hang down and the feeble knees. You know, we don't need to react to God's discipline by despising it, by being overly discouraged by it or simply moving through it. Instead, we need to be trained by it. We need to ask the question, Lord, what can I learn from this? What are you teaching me in this moment? In this time, when I'm, people say they pray for patience, that's one of the scariest things you can do. Don't pray for patience because God's going to bring something on you that's literally going to train you for patience. And then you're like, God, why'd you put me in it? Well, you pray for patience. I'm just trying to see how you're going to respond. I'm training you in it. God wants us to, be, uh, to value our own life. And don't react to God's discipline by despising it. Don't, don't despise God's discipline. Don't be overly discouraged by it. There may be a moment, you know, when things first happen, you're just like, 
I don't know why this is happening to me. I don't know what's... And then, but, but you pray, and you read the Word of God, and you go, God, you've got something bigger in, in this than just what I can see for the moment. A word called providence, sovereignty. God's got a plan in the midst of even the hardship. And the hardship may be found out this side of heaven. Sometimes it isn't until we get to the other side. But it is a teachable moment for us. We can't just simply duck our head and move through it either. We need, to, we need to be looking around, observing what's happening. How is this that's happening in my life? How is it affecting my relationship with Christ? How is this affecting my relationship with those that are around me? We need to be trained in it. Trained in it. Trained through it. You know, we might suffer for our foolishness. You know, we do foolish things. I mentioned a minute ago, throwing those rocks. That was a foolish thing to do. It wasn't my property. I didn't know no better. I just thought it was, well, I probably did know better. That's an excuse. But, um, you know, I just thought it's a junk car. I'm just going to make it a little bit more junky, you know. Uh, but, you know, people make money off junk cars, you know. They do. So, didn't know that. So, we, we might suffer for our foolishness, and I did. I suffered, you know, my dad punished me, and it could have been much worse. But, thankfully, God gave me the right thing to say at the right time. Because then, who knows how bad my punishment would have been if Daddy would have had to pay some kind of fee to fix those cars. We, we, uh, we might stand for Christ in the midst of that hardship. Might give us an opportunity to stand for what we believe in and stand in who we believe in. It might give us that opportunity. And, and we might suffer for current sins. We might suffer because of past sins. You know, earth on earth, every sin has a consequence. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. And then sometimes we might suffer for God's purposes. You got to think about Job. Don't forget about Job. Job had done nothing wrong. He prayed for his family, prayed for his kids. He was a good man, prayed for his family all the time. But then hard, hard times came. So he had to see how he was being trained in it. Don't just discard what God has you going through. It might be for your betterment, for your training. It's, what, it's, it's the good that God's producing through your, through your enduring. The second thing that God's training produces is value for your life with others. Value for your life with others. Look there in verse 14. Verse 14 uh, says this, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So there is, God's training produces value for your life with others. Peace with everyone. As much as it depends on, excuse me, as much as it depends on you and me, we need to be at peace with other people. We shouldn't be people trying to create conflict. We should pursue peace and pursue holiness. You know, and, and when we think about that, we don't need to bring unrest with others into your life through personal unholiness. Personal unholiness leads to unrest and a lack of peace. In Hebrew thought, peace was an intensely positive thing. Peace was an intensely positive thing. It meant two things. One, it was everything, it was everything that made a man's highest good. Peace was. And secondly, peace meant right relationships with God and man. The Bible tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature with God and man. 
And we need to be modeling that same life, growing and being more and more like Christ. It is a state when we have peace. It is a state where hatred was banished and each man sought nothing but his neighbor's good. That's what it meant in that Hebrew thought. It means where hatred was banished and each man sought nothing but his neighbor's good. And when it says no one will see the Lord, this is, this is saying that our unholiness hinders people from getting to Christ. So don't get in the way of others' chances to see God with your unholiness. Don't do that. Pursue the peace of God that comes through living a holy life to have an intimate relationship with Him. Pursue that life. Pursue that life. Our holiness should compel people to Christ rather than our unholiness repelling people from Christ. It should compel people to come to Christ, our holiness, but our unholiness should not be repelling people from Christ. The third thing that God's training produces is a clean heart. Is a clean heart. We see that in verse 15. It says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Three times upon pursuing peace and holiness, the word lest, L-E-S-T, is used. If we are doing these two things, if we are pursuing peace, if we are pursuing holiness, then the following actions will be unlikely to come about. What are those actions? Falling short of the grace of God. Now that is not someone who has been saved. This is an unholiness on on the pre-salvation. People can't get to it. They're falling short of the glory of God because they're seeing your unholiness and you're saying, I'm a believer. I'm a believer and you're living an unholy life. That is a barrier to Christ, to the world. And we must say, no, I've got to make choices that honor Christ, that glorify God. So we live a holy life. We live a holy life before them. And we don't allow this root of bitterness. Now, in some of your Bibles, root of bitterness may be in quotation marks because it is pulled out of a text out of Deuteronomy 29, 18, and 19. And that is what the author is speaking from, is this idea from Deuteronomy 29, 18, and 19. The Scripture says this from Deuteronomy. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. There's where that comes from. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. We don't need to have a root of bitterness in our heart that hinders the lost individual, the person without Christ, to come to Christ. We should be, we should be the last thing that hinders someone from Christ. We should be the person that... Uh, I think about all those classic movies of where there's a water puddle and the gentleman takes off his coat and throws his coat over the water puddle so the woman may walk over. That's the, that's the believer we need to be. We need to be the believer that's willing to take off the coat and throw it over anything so that that lost person may come to faith in Jesus Christ. That needs to be us. We don't need to have a root of bitterness. Our tongue needs to be tamed 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that when people hear us speak, our words are sweet like honey, not bitter, not condemning. The Bible tells us that we'll be held accountable for every idle word that we speak. We need to have clean hearts because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If there's a lot of unholiness within, there's going to be a whole lot of unholiness pouring out. And we need to make sure that we're cautious about that. This root of bitterness, it draws individuals away from God. It's what it does. And the bitter heart isn't living in the grace of God. The bitter heart causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And defiled meaning they are corrupted with destructive talk, gossip, and slander. We need to be mindful of what's within, because what's within will eventually come out. That's the reason why it's so important to have Bible intake. Because if you're being washed with the Word, then what's going to come out will be the Word, and it will be holiness. It'll be edifying. It'll be building up. It'll be encouraging. A bitter heart is like a drop of poison in a gallon of water. It ruins the entire gallon. It'll do it. And a bitter heart is dangerous in a church because it tends to spill out to the loosest tongue into the most damaged souls. A bitter heart is dangerous in a church because it tends to spill out of the, loud, of the loosest tongue into the most damaged souls. We need to, we need to abandon that bitter root. We need, to, we need to abandon the root of bitterness. The fourth thing that God's training produces is better vision. Well, I'd like that. I mean, if it was physical. <laughs> if it's a physical thing, we wouldn't have to wear these contacts anymore. But it's talking about spiritually better vision is what God's training produces. Look there in verses 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17. It says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, for you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So when we look at this, we can see the story of Esau and Jacob in Genesis 25, 29 through 34. I'm not going to go there for a lack of time. But we, we know the story of Esau. Esau comes in from, from out in the field. He is starving. He is the firstborn. He's starving. And he comes in. He tells Jacob, I'm starving. Give me some of that soup. And, and Jacob's like, what are you going to give me? And he's like, I'll give you my birthright. He's like, all right, good deal. Sounds good to me. So he gives him a bowl of soup. And Esau gives up his birthright because he is a person that is carnal after his own flesh, and he makes decisions based upon just on his body. He makes those type of decisions. He did this because as uh, is Jewish thought is always held, this is the way they've perceived and, and uh, made Esau and, and thought of him. Uh, he did this because he was sexually immoral and unholy, Esau was. The fruit of his life demonstrated the root of his heart. He cared more about the present than the future, the physical than the spiritual, the flesh than the spirit. It is not the fact that Esau was barred from forgiveness. You see down there at the end of that passage of Scripture, it says, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. 
It is not the fact that Esau was barred from the forgiveness of God. It is the grim fact that there are certain choices that cannot be unmade and certain consequences that even God cannot take away. Consider a young man or woman who loses their virginity. God can forgive their action, but the consequence cannot be undone. The consequence cannot be undone. It can be forgiven, but it cannot be undone. Repentance is not a presence of tears, but a persistent, heartfelt submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. Yes, repentance may lead you to tears. It's not that tears is not a part of repentance. But I want you to understand, just as it says here, it says, though he sought it diligently with tears, he wanted that, but that could not be undone. It was too late. And you might want to change something that that can't be changed anymore. You've just got to learn to live with the decision that was made, repent and live in God's forgiveness and grace and go on. And we're going to talk a little bit about the difference of if you keep living in that, in that mindset of not going on. That's old covenant stuff. That's law stuff. But Christ has come and Jesus is greater. And we don't live in the law. We live in grace. So we live in the New Testament. We live in the New Covenant. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. We don't live in the Old Covenant. Let's look here. So what does God's training produce? Four things that I talked about that God's training produce. It produces value for your own life. It produces value for your life with others. It produces a clean heart. And it produces better vision. Our vision cannot be singularly in the moment. It needs to be to the present and the future. It cannot be for the flesh. It needs to be for the spirit. Our vision has got to be greater than the, than the isolated moment like a horse with blinders on. We've got to be open and listen to Christ and follow God through it all. The third question, how do I know God's training works? Very quickly, we're going to roll through this. In verses 18 through 21, we've got the reference to the mountain that could not be touched and that burned with fire and the blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. This is recalling back to uh, Moses getting the Ten Commandments. It's beckoning back to that, verse 20. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. That's representative of the old covenant. Now the new covenant, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So how do I know God's training works? It's because you are under the new covenant. You are under the new covenant. You and I are under the new covenant. In his concluding remarks, the author again, but this time succinctly compares the two covenants, the old and the new. And let's look at this. He compares. This is a comparison. If you look at verse 18, there is the physical of the old covenant. It may not be touched. The mountain may not be touched. But then in verse 22, there's the heavenly Jerusalem where we will enter. 
will walk the streets of gold. There are all these things. There's representative of Mount Zion, and that's the city of God is what that's referencing. That's the new. We, and, uh, then there's, we, he compares being fearful, darkness, gloom, and tempest. There in verse 18, but then in verse 22, it's celebratory. You don't have to fear. You can celebrate because there's angels in festal gathering there in verse 22. It says there's innumerable company of angels, which lends to the idea of worship and joy. Then the law in verse 19. In verse 19, it says, those who heard it, that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. It was the message that came down from, from the mountain there. But yet now there's grace to the spirits of the righteous made perfect in verse 23. He compares how it's exclusive in the old covenant. If even a beast touches the mountain, they are to be stoned or shot with an arrow. But yet here it's inclusive to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven in verse 23. Moses was the mediator. He was, a, he was a mere man in verse 24. But yet in verse 24, in, that was in 21. In 24, Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And then he compares the animal blood, the blood of Abel, the, what he was bringing versus Jesus' blood. Blood sprinkled that speaks a better word. When I think about that, there's a song that comes to mind uh, and we've we sung it for many years uh, as a student pastor. And it's a song by Jeremy Riddle. And it goes like this. It says, your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth. Speaks righteousness for me and stands in my defense. Jesus, it's your blood. And it's a beautiful song. And so, like, for all my years of hearing that song speaks a better word, Jesus' blood speaks a better word. It speaks grace. It speaks forgiveness. It speaks new covenant. It speaks no fear. It speaks approachability. I can come before the throne, not because of me, but because of Christ. I don't have to fear God anymore. I have him in awe and reverence in that way, if you want to use that language. But I'm not scared of God. You know why? Because he's my dad, if you want to use that language. Abba, Father, is what the Bible tells us. In reverence, I would never say, you know, those, you know, I mean, he, he's my Abba, Father, if you want to use biblical language, you know. Uh, and that's who he is. And he looks upon me with joy, not with wrath. He looks upon me with pleasure and not with pain. Oh, that, that one's bringing me a lot of trouble. He, he, he loves us. His blood speaks a better word. A major lesson of Hebrews, if we've not caught it by now, is that the new covenant works. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And our final question, why should I receive God's training? In verse 25, it's because we have God's clearest revelation. Verse 25, it says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Why should I receive God's training? Because it's God's clearest revelation. Jesus is speaking. Jesus still speaks. He speaks through his word. He's speaking to you and I. 
We don't need to refuse him. It's a much greater revelation. And we've moved a long way as we've moved through Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Because uh, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says this, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. It's the clearest revelation. That's the reason why we need to receive God's training. Second reason why we need to receive God's training is because we have God's kingdom. We have God's kingdom. Look there in verse 26 and 27. It says, Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Through this, it's talking about the separation of things. When, God, when Jesus begins to shake those things, only the eternal shall stand. We think about this and you think about Old Testament images. and We think about the separating of the wheat and the chaff. Those things that are valuable have weight. They stay. They drop and they stay. Those things that are of no value. They get blown away. And when God shakes these things, the things that are eternal, the things that are of God will stay. But the things that are not will be blown away. The Bible tells us that every element will be burned up and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. It's coming. But those things that, are, that when things are shaken, they'll stay. Who is that? It's Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will not change. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is the one we can trust. He is the new covenant. And it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not of works. So don't think about what all you got to do to be saved. You think about what all Christ did for you to be saved. And then from that salvation, get to work. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We know these things are going to be shaken and removed and taken away. 2 Peter 3, 11-13 tells us, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? This is the English Standard Version. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells but we are often drawn to the lesser things that will not endure we need to draw close to God and he will draw close to us draw near to God and he will draw near to you and what is the last thing what is what what else should I receive uh, why else should I receive God's training it's because God is worthy He's an awesome God as we opened up the service with. He's an awesome God. He reigns in heaven and earth. That's who he is. He is worthy. Let's look at verses 28 and 29 as we conclude this chapter. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. 
Since we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, this kingdom is not going to be shaken. The kingdom of God is eternal. It shall stand. Even the gates of hell shall not prevail against God's church, his kingdom, his people. So let's, since we've got that, let us have grace. What a unique placement of that word, right? You'd think, I would think there'd be a whole bunch of different other words. Let us, let us have courage. Which kind of courage means pull up your bootstraps and get after it. Let us have victory. Mm -mm. Let us have grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sins. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sins. What? That's what we need. Let us have that grace. We have the kingdom. So the grace that's been extended to us, let us extend grace to others. Let us extend grace, extend grace to others for which, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. When we really think about the grace that we've received, our service will be in this way. Our service will be with reverence for God and in godly fear. When we think about the extension of God's grace to us. And we have, our God is a consuming fire. He's going to purge us from all that sin. He's going to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible tells us in 1 John that Donald read earlier, 1 John 1, 9, that if we will confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is a consuming God. And he's either going to consume you with wrath or he's going to consume you with grace. I pray today that you've been consumed by the grace of God through the new covenant that comes through Jesus Christ. If you have a relationship with him, give praise to God for the grace that he gives. Give glory to God for the grace that he gives. Let us have grace. But if you don't know Christ, May you receive grace today. For it is by grace, through faith, that you are saved, not of works, so that you cannot boast. It is the gift of God in Christ Jesus.